All right, so we're gonna go live and we're going live and which means we're gonna be live right now and we are live. Hello everyone and welcome to live stream meetup number 82 of the Data on Kubernetes community. A pleasure to be here as always uh, and very much looking forward to today's meetup. Before we get into the session though, just wanted to mention that we have our CFP for our co-located event in KubeCon. that will be on October 12th uh, in Los Angeles. It will be virtual. We will be uh, in California um, doing everything from there. But just want to let everyone know that you have one day or you have one more day to get in your CFP. CFPs, what are we looking for? Uh, that are focused on industry trends, that are deep technical dives, talking about working with stateful workloads, databases, operators, all that kind of stuff related to the data on Kubernetes ecosystem. So anything related to that, uh, if you have any questions, you can always ask um, if you're not sure about your title. Also want to let you know if you're a younger person, if you're a student, we will be doing a DOK Students Day that will be the week before um, KubeCon. So the CFP will be coming up for that then. Speaking of Kubernetes, all right? So it's, like I said, we've had 82 live streams and today's live stream I think is gonna be quite unique. Um, so very much looking forward to this, to what we're gonna be hearing from Shimon. Um, Post-mortems, when we see after the fact what's gone wrong, we learned last week not to play the blame game looking at people, but to be looking more so at you know systemic failures or things that might not work out. Very, very interested to see how this has been approached. The title is that there's been a hundred post-mortems being done and the learnings that have been extracted from that and how they're gonna be applied in the future. So first of all, uh, welcome to Shimon, who's the CEO of Daytree, Daytree, you're gonna have to help me with that. Um, but before we get into that, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you first got introduced to Kubernetes and then maybe a little bit about what your expectations are for today's session. Yeah, so hi everyone. My name is Shimon Tolz. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Daytree. And I'm actually, I'm a geek since uh, uh, I was very young. I installed my first Linux distribution when I was 12 years old. It was Red Hat 6. And ever since I fell in love with Linux and open source and uh, writing code. And in my background, uh, before starting the tree, I was the general manager of the infrastructure division for a company called Iron Source, which is a company I help scale from 30 to 1000 people. And actually wow. last month, they IPO'd on the NASDAQ for $11 billion, you know, uni <laughs> unicorns. Can we, can, we, can we stop a little bit? How exactly does one go from scaling from, you said 30 to 1,000, if I heard that correctly? How, what was that process like? What did you, how, how did that work? Well, it took four and a half years, and it was very interesting. You know, when I joined the company, it was just this house, and a dog jumped on me, and everything was a total mess. And then we started scaling it, getting more and more and more traffic. So, you know, I started hiring one team, two teams, three teams, four, like I had like more than eight teams at the time. And we had to layer it up and, and build all of the CI, CD, infrastructure, all the different processes in order to be able to build something that is actually scalable and maintainable. And by the time I left, we were 400 developers. So it was very, very interesting. Yeah, wow. I mean, to go through that process, like you said in the beginning, being greeted by a dog and later that, you know, <laughs> this many hundreds and hundreds of people are getting involved. And what about your first experience with Kubernetes? How did you, how did, how did you encounter each other along the way? Yeah, so I love Kubernetes and, uh, you know, orchestrators is something that uh, I'm fascinated by because the, because, no, no, sorry, this you're fine. Yep. because this is something that actually, you know, um, runs everything. So so I, I think I tried so many, like from Nomad to the original ECS one, to then the ECS on Fargate, and now the EKS that is working with Fargate and so on. And I think that once I, I've learned about the concept of Kubernetes, I was really fascinated, especially because back at the time at Iron Source, we were running mainly on AWS. And then we actually acquired a company that was on GCP. And then we acquired a company that was on Azure. And I was running infrastructure, and I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. You know, you have so many problems. Like one company with GitHub, one with GitLab, one with Bitbucket, and three clouds, and, and like all the infrastructure is, is just scattered. And when I learned about the Cloud Native Foundation and Kubernetes itself, it was like, ah, oh, totally makes sense. It's an abstraction yeah. layer, for, and now I can write it once, and it can run on any infrastructure. So mm -hmm. I really fell in love in uh, Kubernetes. Okay, all right. And then since then, can you tell us a little bit more about your current company and the things you're working on? 
Yeah, sure. So today we help prevent uh, Kubernetes misconfigurations from reaching production. And actually it happened because of a personal story that uh, we had. So one of the developers at my previous company made a misconfiguration, which you know it happens. I also make misconfigurations all the time. And it was propagated to production and it caused major issues, as you can imagine. But um, then we've identified the issue, we did a post-mortem, and we thought, okay, so how can we prevent this from happening? And, you know, today I'm talking about uh, what we learned from more than 100 post-mortems. So we'll really go deep into it. But at that point, I thought to myself, so what, what can actually I, I do? Like, how can we make sure that this does not happen again? And we tried sending emails and we tried, um, you know, I'm very active within the community. I'm an AWS community hero. I run a meetup that has 8,000 members. I try to do meetups and webinars, the, the regular things that I know. But it doesn't really scale and it doesn't really work. Mm. Um, you have to do it in an automated way. And maybe I'm I'm like kind of telling what's at the end of my talk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we like... can, we can, I think maybe you can start sharing your screen if you want to so that we don't get any spoilers. That's probably a good idea. Sure thing, sure thing. Yeah, but and just as a reminder to everyone, keep the questions going nonstop, all right? Like we want this to be a fluid conversation. So feel free to, uh, to put anything you want in the chat at any point in time. I'm sure I'll have questions as well. But if you want, uh, you can go for it and start sharing your screen. Okay, yeah, sure thing, sure thing. So I'll go ahead and start doing this. Um, so let me see that I got this right. Okay. Yeah. Are you able to see my screen? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So as I said, so today I'm going to tell you what we learned from, you know, a reading and, and unfortunately experiencing a lot of, you know, misconfigurations and, and, and working with companies that, you know, deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis. And, and it's not a shame, you know, if you're a company that actually does things, and, and you're actually uh, shipping to production, things gonna happen. Things are going to break and it, it is natural. And, and this is exactly uh, the kind of things to expect. I think that the actual question is like, how can I make sure that I don't make the same mistake again? And then how can I build a scalable and um, you know, a solution that makes sense in order for it to work for my, with my uh, organization? So, as I said, my name is Shimon Toltz, and I'm currently based in Tel Aviv, Israel. And um, I run uh, the tree as the CEO, and I'm very, very active within the community. I'm also the co-organizer of CNCF Tel Aviv. So if you ever come by Tel Aviv and you have some uh, talk you want to give, we'd love to hear that from you. So a little bit about uh, uh, our journey and, and the tree. So as I said, we'll prevent Kubernetes misconfigurations from reaching production. We're an open source solution. You can go into the tree.io or github.com slash the tree, and you will find our CLI, which is written in Go. You can open issues, pull requests, and so on. And the main idea is what we focus on is policies. And policies is, is the way that we see um, how you can actually scale an organization and how you can delegate Kubernetes responsibilities to developers without bottlenecking the, uh, the DevOps team and the security teams from having to review everything manually. Can you talk about that a little bit, actually? You know, the, the, the sort of maybe difference between freedom versus control versus safety. That's a great question. So, you know, what usually happens is that uh, as a company, you start and then um, and then you, you go and you start uh, scaling your, your organization and you have one team and maybe you're like five people and everything's good. Um, but then as you start adding more and more people, things start to get, um, you know, more um, complex. And especially for organizations that work in a microservices module model and, and also with Kubernetes, you're then faced with the question. So do on the one hand, you want to delegate infrastructure as code responsibilities to developers, you know, by the way of like you, um, you build it, you run it, you're responsible for it from A to Z. So this is not like the waterfall days where the developers would write code and then 
uh, ops would actually take it over the fence and deploy it. On the other hand, um, it is tricky because, you know, as a, I don't know, as the Java payments engineer, you're not always the number one Docker expert or the Kubernetes expert. So then often what happens is that they start rolling and then there are some incidents and they're trying to educate the developers in terms of what they should do and how. Um, and then some of the companies find themselves blocking production and making the DevOps team review every change that the developers make. And this is kind of sad, in my opinion, because actually, um, it's in a way, it's an anti-pattern because you want to eliminate, um, you know, bureaucracy and eliminate uh, uh, blockers to production. But on the other hand, you want to be safe. And also the DevOps team, they want to work on, you know, interesting problems. They want to work on scale, on cost reduction. They don't want to be human debuggers for YAML configuration, right? And so this is kind of the challenges that we see our customers and, and people in the community where on the one hand, they want to give access to the developers, but on the other hand, they need some sort of a guardrails. And this is what we'll talk about today. Uh, we, the approach that we offer is to provide policies that actually are codified de development standards and practices that can help you. So for example, if I, Shimon, the developer, forgot to put in a liveness probe or a readiness probe um, during my CI CD build or in my computer, um, I will be notified and I will fix this issue. Very, very good. Perfect. Cool. So today we'll talk about Kubernetes fail stories, post-mortems and lessons learned, why we believe in, in policies and some tools that you can use in order to, to actually uh, work with them. So um, let's start with the first one, uh, which is Target. Um, you, I'm sure a lot of you heard about Target. And what happened is that one failing cron job created more than 4,000 pods. And the thing that happened is that uh, there was a small misconfiguration because the default configuration for concurrency policy is allow. And when a job fails, the next job doesn't replace the previous job. Um, so actually uh, it triggered a motion where it created more and more and more and more and more uh, 4,000 pods in, in the system. So I see that there is a question from Bala. Shalom Shimon, what are the best practices to achieve harmless postmortems when there is an incident due to, the, due to policies? Um, I'd love to, to hear more. What do you mean by an incident due to the policies? Uh, I, maybe you could... Yeah, yes? perhaps some elaboration on that, but also because Bala was in our uh, live stream last week when we were talking with Yuri, who's uh, uh, on the CRE team at, at Google. And he was talking about, you know, how to have blameless postmortems, meaning mm. let's see, let's avoid the person and let's see where was the systemic failure. So looking at it that way, take it off of the person. Don't make it like an emotional, personal attack. Let's try to see why, why this error happened, but removing the person from the equation. I totally support that. I believe in that. This is what we do. And I think that uh, for us, uh, you can do it with ConfTest and Gatekeeper or the tree, like our solution is where you can take a postmortem that happened and of course not to blame the person, but to actually write a rule, a policy that will check and prevent this from happening ever again. So I, I totally support that. Um, so a next issue that actually, so in order to, uh, you know, in order to avoid this, what you have to do is to change your concurrency policies to forbid or replace and not to allow because then if your cron job fails, it will just endlessly spawn more and more and more and more and more um, session, more and more pods to, to, in order to fulfill the cron job. Again, a simple mistake that can absolutely blow up your entire cluster. Um, Another problem that happened was to a company named Zalando, which is a large, um, it's like a Zappos, but in Europe for shoes, a very, very large technological company. 
And what happened to them is that um, they had an out of memory issue. And by the way, it was also a, a problem with cron jobs uh, because the cron job was, um, was used. And, you know, as you look at it, you think to yourself, um, do you see any problem? We just talked about concurrency policy and it's actually forbid. So it's supposed to be correct. Um, the problem was actually that they put it in the wrong place. <laughs> so you're saying, but Shimon, they used the right uh, concurrency policy, but it was in the wrong place. And then <laughs> it also spawned a lot of uh, resources. So it's not only what you write in your configuration, it's also where you put your configuration. Uh, so those are uh, <laughs> some uh, interesting parts. And as you can see, the correct place to put it and the wrong place to put it. As this is the correct one. Um, so always ensure that your YAML structure is valid and you can use tools like the tree or cube eval or cube conform in order to make sure that your YAML structure is valid and you have a YAML sch schema validation in terms of your Kubernetes cluster. Next up is a smaller company. Not all companies are large organizations. This is Blue Matador, which is a smaller startup. And one day their DevOps engineer noticed an out of memory event processed by a high memory usage on their production nodes. Um, so you might ask yourself, um, we started to look at the problem and, asked, and he found that the errors come from pods that were third party application, which contain a large usage of memory. Um, so this is like, a, a, you're like saying, but this is not even my, my, you know, my workloads. Like, what am I supposed to do? So they ran out of memory because there was an, actually an issue in, in some third party um, services that they were running on their Kubernetes cluster. And obviously, um, I'd say that the main takeaway from that is to use memory limits and memory requests and CPU limits and CPU requests and to limit every um, workload that is running in order to make sure that um, if it fails and when it fails, it is actually uh, not going to crash our entire cluster. So this way you can uh, separate it and uh, decouple the, the two. And another one by Target. As you can see, they use a lot of Kubernetes at Target. Which is actually great. So an entire cluster was down to an ingress misconfiguration, and it was done, you know, by a developer, and and it was a mistake. Uh, and the cluster was down because a developer set the ingress resource as a star, just put star. And when you specify a star, the as a host, then it actually routes traffic everywhere. So if you put a star in your ingress in Kubernetes cluster, it's going to forward all traffic from all clusters to your container. So one container is taking all the ingress traffic from an entire cluster. So you might imagine to yourself why this actually crashed <laughs> because it makes sense. And all of this was a simple misconfiguration that specified the host star. And this causes everything to, yeah, allows everything exactly to, to route it. So as you can see, um, the lessons learned from those specific mistakes is number one, uh, in the Zalando example, there was a problem with the YAML structure validation and there was no uh, play, the place where they, they put the cron configuration was wrong. Um, enforcing policies uh, on requests and limits by, uh, by Blue Matador, if they would have put a memory limit and memory requests, the third party that crashed them would have not crashed them. Um, of course, the target example talks to us about setting a concurrency policy to not allow, to forbid or replace containers, and therefore make sure that we don't spawn 4,000 containers. And um, don't use star for your ingress host. But, you know, if you look at it, many, many, many companies, and actually, I don't think it's a shame. Everyone crashes, everyone has issues, and that's okay. Because, you know, if you run production, 
that's it. Like things are going to happen. And it takes me to, you know, chaos engineering. I believe in chaos engineering because you know that everything fails. And at some point you're going to fail. The question is, how are you going to recover? And what are you doing in order to prevent it? No, I think, it's, I think so, it's a very good point. And things that we've learned from Slack, from Google, from Netflix, um, is that all of these things will, will break down at some point. And like you said, with chaos engineering is to anticipate that so you can test for that and see how things are going to react. If there is a failure, if there's a shutdown, if there's a blackout, what kind of downtime you're going to be dealing with. I think it's a very, very good point. I totally agree. So believe me, if your Kubernetes crashed, you're in... <laughs> You're in a good company of companies like Toyota and Datadog and so on. So now the question is, how can you prevent this in the future? Because I know I showed you four uh, great examples of misconfigurations that caused outages or big issues to companies. But, you know, it's it just happened to be that they gave you those four examples. There are like 4,000 examples for different combinations of misconfigurations that could have happened. And you're asking yourself, maybe I have 10 developers, maybe I have 50 developers and I'm a DevOps engineer. I'm a maybe security engineer. I want to make sure that my workloads run safely. And I actually want to help the dev team make the right decision. Um, but how can I prevent it from happening in the future? Because it is just not feasible to remember all of those configurations in your head, no matter how good you are. And even if you're a DevOps engineer, it's also hard to remember everything. So in order to cope with that, I suggest um, testing your infrastructure as code and Kubernetes um, in the configuration phase um, throughout your entire dev cycle in your IDE, in your CLI, in your pre-commit hook, in your CI, in your CD, and so on. What, one thing really quickly, and perhaps this will relate to this, uh, just a question from someone in the audience. Is there any best practices for this incorrect YAML configuration that you mentioned uh, just a bit ago? And what might help uh, in the future? Yes. So, um, so you could use uh, solutions uh, like the tree. Um, I'll just show you the, the documentation. So what happens is you need to use schema validation. So you can use solutions like kubeconform that comes pre-installed inside the tree. And actually it validates the schema of the YAML. So if you run it on a schema that is not correct, it will prevent it from going forward. And by doing so, you will be able to validate that it is correct. And so you can either use tools like the tree or just go and use tools like kubeconform, for example, which is a great project that does the same thing, only it's uh, not a SaaS like us. It's more of a CLI. And uh, you run it and you validate um, your Kubernetes YAML files. Thank you for your question. Perfect. Thank you. Cool. So um, as you can see, um, what we're doing is I'm going to explain to you how I believe um, is a good way to, to deal with it. So throughout the development process, if you implement automated tests, like we showed now with kubeconform or the tree or uh, Katekeeper and so on, you can actually help yourself and your developers and your team make the right decisions. So um, let's go deeper into it. So let's talk about ConfTest and the tree. ConfTest and the tree runs more on the development side and see and CI pipeline. And it is similar in a way to uh, unit tests. While Gatekeeper runs on the production, and I will show you now deeper how it works within internal webhooks of uh, Kubernetes. Uh, it's called admission controller in Kubernetes, and I will show it to you in a moment. So um, let's start with Gatekeeper. So Gatekeeper is a policy controller for Kubernetes, and it leverages a webhook mechanism that is called an admission controller webhook inside Kubernetes, which means that when a configuration is applied to the cluster, a hook then runs and validates whether this configuration is valid to run on the cluster or not. 
So I apply a set of configuration into the Kubernetes API. The, the gatekeeper webhook executes and talks to my OPA policies and checks whether those changes are valid in order to be applied on the cluster or not. So let's say maybe I have a resource, let's say a third party container that I want to run, and I did not specify any memory limit and memory requests. So I would do kubectl minus apply minus F, I don't know, to some Elasticsearch database or whatever you want to do. It will go in, Gatekeeper will then look at the policy that we have and will tell us, hey, listen, Shimon, this operation failed. You cannot apply this. I will not run this on my cluster because we will not allow you to run things without memory and request limit. And this is very powerful because this can prevent us from uh, running such workloads. And the way it works is that you actually need to build a constraints file and feed it to Gatekeeper. In this case, this is an example of a constraint file that you see Kubernetes required labels. So this constraint file uh, requires people to define namespace labels. And this is what Gatekeeper will check once you apply policies into it. So once I actually go and uh, apply this uh, Gatekeeper template, it will go and, and look at for the package Kubernetes required labels, and it will say that I'm violating um, this uh, policy with the uh, details that the label is missing. If actually there are no labels, the, the way it is being checked here is it does count on the amount of labels. And if it uh, does not exist, it says you must provide labels. I'm not, I don't want to, you know, go too deep into the code, but um, just to explain a, a little bit the concepts of how it works, obviously you can check it out, it's an open source. So this will help us protect on, you know, on the right side. But then you ask yourself, but Shimon, the right side, it's already too late. You know, it's... Uh... <laughs> It's, it's already being applied to production. It's already in my Git. It's already in my master branch. It already built, a, you know, built a, a Docker container. I want to find those issues earlier in the pipeline. So for that, you can use tools like ConfTest and the tree. So um, it helps by writing tests against structured files like Kubernetes YAML, Helm charts, and so on. And it is uh, used to be running the CI and or in local testing, and it is built on top of Open Policy Agent, which is also a graduated project in the Cloud Native Foundation. So the way it works is uh, it looks just like tests. So um, conf test, test deployment YAML. So it actually runs a test against the deployment.yaml file. And, and in this case, it uh, failed because the containers did not uh, include a, a label. So um, similarly to the way uh, the tree works, it's a very, very simple CLI solution for policy enforcement and built-in policies and best practices. And, and the neat thing about it is that similar to ConfTest, um, it runs against structured files and YAML files, but you do not have to write the policies by yourself because we actually provide out-of-the-box policies for you to be evaluated. So, you know, the 100 post-mortems post that we ran and, and read, we actually took them and we, we took the most common ones and the most painful ones and we built predefined policies for them. So if you actually installed the tree CLI, you will get those policies for free. Of course, you can also build it by yourself using ConfTest, it's, it's up to you. Um, but I encourage you to go and test and uh, try out our solution. It is open source and pull requests are very much welcome. Um, and uh, let me show you the open source uh, repository because uh, we are very proud of it. It's open source code, it is written in Go and it is very active within the community and 
people are opening issues, we are in communication with them. And what it allows you is to run centralized checks against all of your resources. Okay, good. And we have another question. Um, do these tools, Gatekeeper, ConfTest, work well against different versions of Kubernetes? Or perhaps as well, just um, for me to add on to that question, to what extent would some of these be more Kubernetes native than others? That's a great question. So look, if we look at ConfTest, I'm, I'm switching to more of a sort of like a demo mode, but uh, you know, we're all tech people here. So if you look at it, ConfTest is a great, 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 a project, um, but it's scaffolding, it's infrastructure. So it does not know anything about policies. It just knows how to run them. So if we go into the examples, let's choose the Kubernetes example. You will see that they have a, a deployment YAML here, which is a very simple YAML. And what you can do is you can write a policy. So if we go into the Rego policy, it is actually checking um, whether the uh, containers have uh, a run as root and whether they have labels up and labels release. They do not have the context of the Kubernetes version. They do not have the context about where you're running and they do not come pre-built with policies. If I go into a solutions like the tree, so I can show you that in the tree, we actually allow you to define which Kubernetes version are you running against. So you can run, you can set a global version inside uh, your settings. So this is like my default Kubernetes service version, which is 1.21.0. And also in the CLI, when you actually run the, the CLI command, you can specify a custom Kubernetes version. So this is also nice. So if you have different types of workloads, you can uh, specify minus Kubernetes version and say 1.18, 1.19. And then this is uh, the version that things are going to be tested against. Cool. So um, I'll tell you this. What I really encourage you to do is to go on and try out ConfTest, Gatekeeper, sign into the tree. Um, really, um, no matter which solution you choose, it's just the question is whether you want to build it yourself or use a built-in solution, you, you choose. But I really, really encourage you to do so because at the end of the day, your next outage is almost inevitable. If you do not configure uh, automated policies that will check for your uh, run runtime and, and workloads. And you can go into hub.tree.io, what I showed, and you can just copy paste our policies. You can steal our policies if you want to build them yourself, be our guest. We have a curated list and policies like make sure you have a liveness probe and readiness probe and memory limit and CPU limit and, and all of the good, great curated policies um, of course, we offer a premium or offer. So if you're like a small team, it's going to be for free. If you want to build it by yourself, feel free to take it and build it in ConfTest and be my guest. Yeah. With that in mind, as a, as a general sort of trend and shift, because we were talking about earlier the, the importance of guardrails, you know, and we see this as well, too, because of, uh, like, I know we're, we're talking about misconfigurations here, but also security issues and things like that, that, you know, developers don't need to be where they don't need to be. And then there, you know, there are some, there are some different ways of looking at that. But a lot of what we're talking about here is we to, you know, to situate this in the Kubernetes uh, framework. I guess we would say, are we talking about day one, day two? What would you say? So I think you should start with it mm -hmm. because building things from the bottom up and and making sure that that you know it's easy to to start fresh like we have large companies even like microsoft and cisco who use our solution and and it's okay they're very successful companies but they come with a lot, lot of baggage yeah 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 exactly which which is okay we, yeah, we yeah. can help with that we support but obviously if you're a smaller organization it just makes sense to put the guardrails out there yeah. even if it's just a simple one 
Uh, for example, we offer 21 default rules that are enabled by default. If you just follow those 21 rules, you will be much, much better from where you were. And then you can just continue and, and, and work on it. So I definitely advise you to start from the very, very beginning. Cause that's the thing. It's just like, it seems that a lot of companies don't really value these things until they have the, until they have a problem. And, and there's like, now we need something. It's like, well, you actually could have had something from the very beginning. What is it that prevents that from happening from the very beginning? Is it a cost thing? Is it a lack of visibility, perhaps of some of these problems, even though we have these big names that you mentioned, we have Slack, we have Google, we have all Zalando, like very well-known companies. Um, they're saying that they're having problems by not having, you know, good policy put in place and these guardrails put in place. So what more argument or convincing do folks need to really take this seriously and make it a day zero thing? So I think, uh, <laughs> well, at the end of the day, you need to be aware of the, of the issues and you need to, to cater to it. And one thing that I find very, very interesting and I would like to share with our lovely community. Um, I'll just share it with you again. Um, da, da, da. Here I got it. If we look, you know, you don't need to believe me. Like there is a great company called Red Hat. If we yeah. look at the state of Kubernetes security report that they just did. So they've asked the responders. They said in the past 12 months, what security incidents or issues related to containers or Kubernetes have you experienced? The number one. Issue is detected misconfiguration. And then, you know, they ask them, uh, they ask them the question of who is responsible for container and Kubernetes security. The interesting part is that DevOps, Ops, architects, SREs, developers are really responsible for security in Kubernetes and container workloads, which is a very interesting shift. And finally, it, is, it is particularly because you could say, all right, security and DevSecOps, you would understand that like by default, it falls on them. But seeing those yeah. other roles that are outside of a DevOps, uh, you know, ops or sysadmins and then developers, having them brought into the equation too, that is very interesting from a responsibility perspective. Absolutely. And if you, you look, you ask them of the falling risk, which are the ones the most worried about in container Kubernetes environments? And again, it's it's misconfigurations. And and if we go back to, to the beginning of when we started talking, it's all about shifting the responsibility from the ops and DevOps team being the ones that are responsible for production. Now it's shifted to the developers to give them autonomy, to give them infrastructure as code responsibilities so they are free to work agile and deliver software fast. So now you're, the number one thing they're afraid of is inside the company, is them yeah. making mistakes by themselves and not external hackers hacking them. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a really, really good point. And it, because it's always assumed that it's the outside threat that is really going to do damage when in reality you should be looking in the mirror to, to see how things are done. I guess another thing as well too is that I, I don't know how things are in, um, you know, in, in Israel, obviously there's a very strong cybersecurity community, probably one of the strongest in the world, if not the strongest. Is, is, is it in an academic sense are developers taught to take you know, security in mind from a very early phase? Or is it something that you just kind of encounter maybe once you get in a bigger company where they have you know, stricter policies? How does that work compared to what you've seen perhaps in other countries? So I don't think it's a country specific thing. I think as, as you start working, it, it depends on your vertical. Let's say if you're a healthcare company, yep. you know, from the get go, you need to be HIPAA. So it doesn't matter. Um, but as you start growing more and more, most of our, our, our customers, when they come to us, they come because there was a mistake someone made. Yeah. Honest mistake, really. And, and, and I, and as we talked before, like I support the blameless postmortems. Uh, and, and I think that it's really good. But um, they just go, I want to prevent the next one. And I want to, I've heard customers say, I want to improve my infra safety score. I mm. want to help my developers make the right decision. I want to give them guardrails that will allow them to, to just do the right thing from the get-go. That's a good point. And with that in mind too, is that it's not that because it might be perceived by some developers that they're trying to cut your freedom or clip your wings. But like you said, it's no, it's actually to, to help you and to empower you to, to be to be a better developer. I mean, and, and, and that's simple. Exactly. If you think about it, if you have a failure by ConfTest or the tree, the, the remediation part should not be on the DevOps team. 
for us, we output the error to the developer. We give them a link to our docs and tell them, hey, this is how you fix it. This is why it fails. This is what you need to do. And then your DevOps team is not bottlenecked. They can actually go and work on resource management, on whatever, security, performance, yeah. and so on, and not babysit and be, you know, human debuggers for YAML files. This is a really good point. And I think it, I think it probably brings in the question too. One thing is to be a developer, whatever that means in a traditional sense. But if we're talking about cloud, if we're talking about Kubernetes, if we're talking about this kind of infrastructure architecture and, you know, container orchestration, then it's not maybe developer with a, a lowercase d, but actually something that's a little bit more serious. We got a question that's a little bit off topic, which is okay. It's nice to have off topic questions. Sorry, it might be out of session, but could you please advise me, is it a good idea to install Elk stack on Kubernetes master node or worker node? We are trying to implement it. We are trying to implement our own cloud. So look, databases on Kubernetes is not easy. Uh, you can use replica sets. Um, and I advise you look at that. Um, I love uh, managed solutions for databases. That's my personal opinion, because I don't want to be the one to have to babysit my own database. Now, of course, as we said, there are different verticals, different uh, areas. Then, I would look yeah. at daemon sets. Yeah. And the thing is actually specifically related to that, we had a, we had a live stream that was about um, specifically, um, let's see, uh, I'll link that in there. But like you said, I think the vertical thing is is a big is a big thing because it's like, well, they do this, so I want to do the same thing. It's like, yeah, but what kind of customers do you have? What kind of regulations do you have that are going to influence that? If you're working with finance or with healthcare and things like that, there are just going to be different kinds of restrictions. Um, and and obviously that's going to influence that. So it's not as simple as saying, oh, this is a wonderful technology, so it's going to work for everybody. It really does kind of depend. We will, you know, what's your use case or what kind of uh, yeah. what kind of customers are you trying to serve? So, so yeah, anyway, happy, happy to pass that on um, if that's helpful. Just uh, a correction, I meant replica set, not demon set, replica set. Yeah, yes. no problem, no problem, no problem. Um, yeah, so that's fine. Uh, replica sets, we'll put that as the way to go. Um, very, very good. Now, as someone who's been working with Kubernetes for a while and is really digging deep on this, this side of things, you know, what are your hopes for how Kubernetes will progress in the in the next in let's say let's not say five years because that's kind of a long time. Let's say one to two years. And looking at 2023, what would you like to see be happening that would make it a better working environment? Um, and uh, like I said, a better working environment and a better developer experience. We can think about it that way too. So I think that still managing Kubernetes is hard. And, and of course, you know, we run on cloud vendors and even setting it up on the cloud vendor, like not setting it up by yourself on, on servers, just using like the managed solutions is also not so easy. And I think that simplicity is very important. Now, of course, you always have the battle. It's, it's like the battle that we talked about, you know, uh, whether you, you give a control or you give a, or you empower people to yeah. have their own responsibility. It's the same thing here. It's like flexibility versus simplicity. So Kubernetes started with flexibility. You can do anything you want. The problem is then when you want to do something, you need to switch 17,000 knobs and <laughs> change everything and, you know, and pull away all the levers. And then it's like really, really complicated. Uh, so I hope that uh, in my mind, what I would love to see is is going and making it easier and easier and easier and simpler for people to just run stuff. And if they want to go advanced, like I like products that are like easy to start, hard to master, rather than hard to start. And then, you know, you have no other way than to master it. So this yeah. is the way I like. I think I think that's a really good point, and it's what a lot of people have said is like kind of like this wild west sort of phase that that's, that Kubernetes is going through, and that eventually, not to use the word boring, you know, we don't want because that doesn't sound fun, but that you know a little bit more predictable, a little bit you know the easier entry points to get started. I think those are good points too. Um, very good. Also, because you mentioned that you're in you're in Tel Aviv, but your company is based in San Francisco, I believe. Yes. And what was the story behind that? Uh, we're an international company, so we have a, in a, we're a U.S.-based company, like a Delaware Corp, and uh, we're a Y Combinator company, so we went through the Y Combinator uh, program, 
And uh, yeah, we're, we're based in San Francisco. Most of our people now, we, we, we've gone like remote. We still have an office in Israel, but we have remote people working all over the world. You know, the world has changed. <laughs> now, yeah, where, where, where are you based? It's like kind of fluid, you know? Yeah. No, I just said that because I, I saw the Y Combinator bit. I think you're the fourth person to be coming from Y Combinator that's been in our in our live stream. So shout out to Y Combinator. They're doing something well. <laughs> Things are working. Um, what, what was that process like going through Y Combinator? Y Combinator? Uh, well, it's it's a great accelerator for startups. Um, if you can get in, I really suggest you do it. Uh, for me, it was great meeting like the mentors there, they're like real people who like built huge companies, IPO'd or sold them for like hundreds of millions of dollars. It's 100% no BS, straight to your face, like telling you for real what's going on. And they're just gonna, on the one hand, push you and, and help you go forward. On the other hand, help you if you have any advice, they will always love you and accept you for who you are. Mm-hmm. And... They have an awesome community of 2,000 engineers now, uh, 2,000 founders now. And it's also really helpful because um, being a founder, it uh, can be, you know, in a way lonely. And you want to meet more founders and you want to talk to like-minded people. And this is uh, the best community in my mind in the world for founders to brainstorm and talk to one another. Yeah, because like you said, it, it can definitely be isolating and feeling that you're you're very much on your own. Does that make sense? Now, thinking about other things regarding Kubernetes, because we did touch on briefly what you were saying about managed data solutions. You know, a big focal point in our community is, you know, working with stateful workloads on running stateful workloads on Kubernetes databases, things of that nature. Do you feel like people are not doing that now because of a lack of knowledge, a lack of trust, a lack of money? Is it human power? Is it talent? What do you think it is? So look, your data on Kubernetes. So first of all, data is like, again, it's a fluid, like, Fluid thing, right? Data can be files in S3, can be JSON files that I run Spark on and my Spark runs on, on Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. Data can be the traditional MySQL database and, mm-hmm. and data can be Elasticsearch or data can be a cache like Redis in my Kubernetes. So first of all, it's a, there's a wide variety of, of, of what you call data. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the data is very important. I think that data is hard because running stateless things is is easy because you scale up, scale down, you do whatever you want. Running databases and, and dealing with data, data has gravity, data has state in many times. And um, you should really leverage, um, you know, solutions that are out there today. And I love doing mix and match. Like maybe you have a Kubernetes cluster, but maybe your data is in S3, for example, and then you run your compute workload on Kubernetes, but you actually read the data from S3. I'm just mm-hmm. giving one example, right? Yeah. Um, so, so in my mind, I think this is where it's going. I think that uh, unfortunately, it's still not that easy to run stateful, full-blown databases on Kubernetes. Mm-hmm. Like for example, running a Cassandra 100 node cluster on Kubernetes. I think it can be challenging. Yeah. I think it's not the most easy thing to do. Yeah. No, and that's, that's once, once again, the point is that Kubernetes trends in general, hopefully shifting from harder to easier. It's just a question of time. And also, once again, the community focus is the more people get in on this and are asking questions and sharing ideas, the easier these things will become. As you've probably seen, you know, by participating in different communities, whether in the United States or in Israel, lots of different places. Um, that's where a lot of these things come out, as well as, of course, end users saying, this is how things have been working for us. And these have been our, you know, our, our successes and also looking at the postmortems to see what's gone wrong. Um, anything else that we haven't heard about Detree that we should know? Um, well, I just encourage everyone to go and try it out. We have more than 180 companies at this point using our solution. I just love to hear from enthusiasts. And people who who use the, you know, who are really practitioners and really using the uh, Kubernetes in production. So I'd really love to hear your feedback. If you need, like, I'll give you a lot of free tier, whatever you need. We just love for you to use it to give us more feedback. We have a very interesting roadmap coming. More things around custom policies. More things regarding connecting to the cluster. 
and so on. So love to hear your feedback. Very, very good. Um, seems pretty easy to get involved. And if folks want to get more involved, are you hiring at the moment by any chance? Just curious. Uh, yes, we're hiring currently, mainly in Israel. Okay. Uh, so if this is something that is interesting to you, feel free to reach out to me directly using LinkedIn or any other medium. Okay. So quite accessible. Once again, easy to get involved. Before we go, we have a tradition in our community. Um, so I'm going to share my screen now. Uh, but first of all, I have to open this. Um, there we go. So we have a tradition in our community that while the speaker is speaking, we have a wonderful person who's behind the scenes doing something else. And that something else happens to be art, right? So let me know when you can, when, let me know when you can see my screen. I can see your screen. Perfect. Oh. So while we've been talking, our dedicated and diligent and extremely talented uh, graphic recorder, Angel, has been creating this uh, this drawing, this graphic depiction of the different things that you were talking about. So here we do have a post-mortem in the truest sense um, and seeing the different companies that you mentioned going through that and with a, a very interesting toe so tag cool. as well with, uh, with Kubernetes on that. So it's just always nice to sort of synthesize the different things that were mentioned here. It was a very practical presentation, very easy to follow along. I think we all have a much better understanding about policy, the value that it brings, the dangers and risks of, of misconfiguration. As you rightly pointed out to it, that Red Hat study, I think that you couldn't make it clearer. You couldn't make a better case for that. Um, so for everyone who's out there, this is definitely something you're gonna need to take seriously now and for the rest of your Kubernetes lives. And you have Shimon as a very open, welcoming, friendly, accessible person who'd be happy to get in touch with you and, and, and guide you through that process if you have any doubts or questions. Um, it was an absolute pleasure having you with us today and hope to have you back soon. Best of luck with everything you're doing. And once again, just, just to repeat, folks, if you want to get in touch, very, very easy. Check out the tree, check out what they're doing, um, see what's going on, ask for help. He's very good at answering questions, much better than I am. So definitely take advantage of, of the openness and the ability to do that. Um, thanks to everyone in the audience for attending and looking forward to having you back soon. And shout out to Sharon for making this happen as well. Big shout out to community people like Sharon that make this happen. A wonderful person that everyone else should meet. I'll try to link her in the description when we, uh, when we put this up on YouTube. Um, anything else you'd like to add before we finish? Thank you, Bart. Thank you very much for having me. It was a real pleasure and thank you very much. Likewise. You take care, man. We'll be in touch.